Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 8. And I'm going to read 21 through 30. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know I am He. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would, since, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, that you would enlighten us by your Holy Spirit and the true understanding of your word. I pray that you would make us like children, longing for milk. Father, that we would long to be taught from your word and the Spirit would be working in us and illumining our, our hearts and our minds. And Father, as we learn from your word, I pray that we would not be those who, who are like the man who looks in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like, but we would be those who look intently into your word and who then live it and live in the fear of you. And so, Father, help us, bless us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we return again to this passage where Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. They brought to Jesus, you remember that woman who was caught in adultery, and now Jesus has condemned, not the woman caught in adultery, but he's condemned these Pharisees as those who cannot come where he is going. He's condemned them as those who will die in their sins. And so Jesus confronted their unbelief and said, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. I mean, that's later in some of the other Gospels, you know, He goes after their hypocrisy. You hypocrites, you do this, you require this, right? You brood of 
of vipers, right? And, and, but here he's saying, you will die in your sins. It's maybe the most intense things that he said to the Pharisees. And so we pick up with the, the Pharisees' response in verse 25, and they ask a question, who are you? Who are you? It's a ridiculous question if we, if we take them for genuine, right? If, if they're like, who are you? I mean, he's been time and time again testifying to, to who he is, and, and others have been testifying about him, and his words and works have been testifying about him, and even his father has spoken from heaven testifying about him. There's no, there should be no confusion in the Pharisee's mind about who is standing before him. We've already gone through that. Now, in the grand scheme of things, you know, if, if they're asking that question out of genuine motives, it's a good question. You know, we want everybody to contemplate that question. That's why we evangelize. We want to get, peop- get people thinking about who is Jesus, you know. And, um, but coming from these Pharisees at this point who have, who have just been condemned by Jesus, you're going to die in your sins. The question is more along the lines of, who do you think you are, Jesus? We find in the Greek that they actually say, you? Who are you? It's meant to be dismissive. It is meant to diminish Jesus. And they have ignored every testimony about Jesus. And they are not now getting serious about contemplating who this man is. They want him dead. That's how sure they are. They know who he is. Jesus again indicts them for ignoring all the proof that he was God and that he was from the Father and that he was the Messiah. Jesus says to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? What have I said all along? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Now there are a few things in that statement we're stopping and contemplating. First, what does Jesus mean when he says from the beginning? Uh, The easiest interpretation is to say that he's referring simply to the beginning of his ministry, right? From the beginning of my ministry, I've been saying this to you, and you have rejected it. Since he's been preaching and healing and going about Jerusalem as a Savior, doing these works that no one had ever done before him, and he's been speaking about who he is. He has nothing new to say about it now to the Pharisees. You've heard it from the beginning. They have rejected what he has said. They want to kill him for saying that he was from heaven. And Jesus now has nothing else to add to them. What a, what a glorious thing that is, isn't it? He hasn't been wishy-washy. Jesus hasn't been wishy-washy. He doesn't have half of his... Um, you know, life that he wants to uh, hide and half that he wants to reveal. 
You know, he's just been very clear about this. He has done his father's will, and his message and life have been consistent. I am the son of God. Uh, One commentator says, What a bright example our Lord here sets to all Christians, and especially to ministers, of always telling the same story and witnessing one and the same confession without variation. He just, he was on point all the time, and they're still asking, Who are you? He's the only man in the history of the world that can have that kind of complete consistency, right? And, and single-minded devotion to the Father. The rest of us, born in our sin, have testimonies to our faith, but we also have testimonies to our sinfulness, right? We have testimonies to all the things that we've done that are not pleasing to God. We have our faith but we also have a mixed testimony, right? We done screwed up a million times. And so uh, our testimony about ourselves is really this, I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's the only testimony that that a Christian can truly have. God has been gracious to me because more times than I can count, I've rejected his will. I've rejected his will. I've gone my own way. I have both hated and loved God. And that's why grace is necessary, brothers and sisters. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not so our Savior. He did not fall short of the glory of God. He lived sinlessly. He lived to glorify his Father. He did not waver. He did not have any sort of mix in his testimony. He loved his father perfectly. His testimony about himself that he was from heaven and did his father's will was completely true from the beginning. Even all the way back to the beginning of all things visible and invisible. Even before all things visible and invisible, Jesus was happy doing his father's will. He was a son after all. The son's delight through all time has been to devote, to fulfill his father's will. He who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. He receives his words from God, and he faithfully delivers those words to the world. That's the posture of the Son of God through all eternity. He does what he sees his father doing. He speaks the words the Father gives to him. He is the perfect Son. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says to the Pharisees, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you? What is he getting at there? Remember the judgment that he has just pronounced. That they are from below that they will die in their sins and can't go where he is going. He has just pronounced a judgment about as stark and, and as intense as it could possibly get. He's condemned these Pharisees to hell unless they turn to him and believe. I think here he's essentially saying there are many more things I could say to you right now. There are many more judgments I could make about every one of you. I know your hearts. 
I know your thoughts. I know everything you've done in your lives. I know your hypocrisy. I know your pride, right? I have many more judgments I can make, and I have the right to do so, but I'm going to refrain for now. He's actually halting his judgments and going on to speak positively about what he is doing, right? He, it, what his calling is as the Son of God. Once again, he's telling the Pharisees that he is from the Father. How many times does he say that in this, in this gospel? He says it all the time. I'm from the Father. I'm from the Father. I came down from the Father. I'm the bread from heaven. I've come down to do the will of the Father, Right? How many times? It's his consistent refrain, and these Pharisees just will not accept it. They won't have it. And perhaps even more than that. Now look, notice what the text says in verse 27. The Pharisees are deaf. The Pharisees are deaf. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. It seems they supposed he was talking about someone else sending him. They thought some, some, some man, perhaps, had sent him. Uh, this is the confusion of unbelief. This is the mind without the Holy Spirit. where nothing in the scriptures makes sense, where no word of God makes sense. That is the mind of unbelief. That is the mind without the Holy Spirit. The Son of God is speaking, and these men in their minds are just darkened. They don't get it. 1 Corinthians 2. Right? They cannot understand Jesus because their minds are darkened. They can't properly think. They can't properly perceive. They really do need the work of the Holy Spirit to illumine their minds and reveal to them who this Jesus is and the meaning of what he says. If that is true of Jesus, that, that when he speaks, those without the Holy Spirit can't understand, how much more is that true of you? When Jesus speaks, they don't get it. How much more is that true of you evangelists? Right? You will witness, you will speak of Jesus, you may even be brilliant and elegant and eloquent and elephant. You may have the best arguments derived from Scripture just in a tight package that's a, a tasty, you know, bite. But if the Spirit of God is not working in the one that you're talking to, not working in the ears and the mind and the heart of the one hearing you, it will have zero effect. It will have no effect. None. Those without the Spirit of God in them cannot understand the things of God. To put it positively, that the Spirit's work of regeneration is necessary for dead men to come to a knowledge of the truth. Scripture explains this very clearly. 1 Corinthians 2. Yet we, speak, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. 
But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through what? Nope. Wrong. The Spirit. God revealed these truths through the Spirit. Right? For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And now, here's his summary. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He cannot understand them. The Pharisees are natural men. Right? And so Jesus could talk and talk and talk to them, but, if, but if, if the spirits that Jesus and the Father send are not working there, even Jesus' words will not convert them. Right? They cannot understand. So again, for you evangelists and for you that witness, which should be everybody, right? Should you stop honing your arguments and, and seeking to speak spiritual truths with precision and eloquence and elegance? No. No. But you should be praying. You should be praying as you witness because you will win no one with the brilliance of your argument. You should plead with God that he would give uh, hearing ears to those who hear you speak his word hearing ears, that he would work supernaturally, that the Spirit would work. The Pharisees are not hearing God's word because the Spirit is not working in them. And then Jesus says this. And we'll focus on this for the rest of the, the, rest of the sermon. Jesus says this, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know these unknowing Pharisees, then you will know I am He. Wait, I mean, how is, that, how is it that they will know then what they refuse to know and will not know now? And what is Jesus by when you lift up the Son of Man? Well, let's take that first. Uh, that's fairly easy. He can mean nothing other than when he is crucified. When he is lifted up on uh, those beams, right? He would be nailed to a Roman cross and lifted up on that cross. And so he is speaking of the manner of his death when he says this. He's telling them he's going to die. And after that, then you will know I am he. 
He's telling them he's going to die. Two other times in John's gospel, he says the same thing. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? You remember that where Moses lifted the serpent and all those who had been poisoned looked to the the serpent and they were healed. Um, And then John 12, 32, Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So Jesus is talking about his crucifixion when he's talking about being lifted up. And he states that at that point, after he dies, after he is lifted up, these Pharisees, these Jews, in fact, the whole world would know that he is the Messiah. In what sense? Well, they will know that they made a huge mistake about who he was when he was alive. They'll know that. When Jesus said this, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. He is clearly implying a couple of things um, to these unbelieving Pharisees. The first is this. Jesus is saying that these Pharisees, these Jews, are wrong in thinking that His death will be the end of Him. And all his claims he has made about himself. They think that in killing Jesus, it's going to shut him up. And all of his claims that he's made, all these false claims they believe, it will end them. It will be over. Right? They think that if they kill Jesus, then this headache, this troubler of Israel will be gone. And Jesus is correcting them. They've got it all wrong. Think of Jesus' crucifixion. The Jews gathered around Jesus and mocked him. Still refusing to believe that he was from the Father. The Jews mocked Jesus, showed that they believed that he was powerless in life and would ultimately be powerless in death. You know, they're mocking him for his weakness on the cross. Come down from the cross. Oh, come down. Save us. They're mocking Jesus. And and they observe his weakness. Here here he is dying finally. Right? And, And they thought all these claims, they're over. All these things that he said about himself, all these promises, they're over finally. Look at his weakness. Not only was this not the Messiah, but he's just a powerless weakling. Look at him weeping and dying on the cross. And let's move on. Isn't there a football game we get to watch? That's what they're thinking. I meant soccer. What is the truth of the matter? It is, is it not true that after his crucifixion and death, his end had not come? I mean, far from it. The truth is actually this. In putting me to death, you are just elevating me back to my Father's glory, back to my everlasting glory. Right? He's going to be seated to the right hand of God. 
That's where he's going after he dies. The right hand, the right hand of power, right? That's where Jesus will be seated. He's going back to the glory that he enjoyed through all eternity. And their crucifixion would be the means of returning him to the glory. They think it's an end to everything. And he's like, no, no, it's going to be a means to me having more power than I have now. Think about it. What came with Christ's crucifixion? After his death, all of his claims were confirmed. His death provided proof of everything he claimed about himself and his life, that he was from God, that he came to save sinners, that he would rise from the dead. Think of the extraordinary things that happened when he was dying. Things that had never, ever happened before. When was the last time the temple veil was torn in two, top to bottom? Ripped in two. The sun stopped shining. And darkness spread across the land in the middle of the day. Dead rise from their graves. And walk about like living people. Right? The earth shook and the centurion looks on Jesus and says, when all of this is going on, he says, truly, this was the Son of God. He's an example of this very verse. Jesus was raised up and he knew this was the Messiah. He knew this was the Son of Man. But all of that, all of those Extraordinary circumstances around his death is just child's play compared to the main thing that happened after his death. They kill him and he lives. (laughs) They kill him and he lives on. They kill him and he rises from the dead. They had sealed the tomb. They had set guards, right? Just, you know. But that did not stop Jesus from rising from the dead. He rose. They killed him. And he lived on. I mean, even the disciples at this point are still struggling with who Jesus was. They don't quite get it. They they had to be convinced by Jesus coming back to them after he rose from the dead, right? Think of Thomas. You know, unless I put my hand in his side, you know, I'm not going to believe in him. But Jesus comes to him and he does it. And then what does he say? My Lord and my God. Think of, think of, Just how all the apostles are dispirited, depressed, crestfallen after he dies. And then on the road to Emmaus, you know, remember what happens there. They're all just like, they're so depressed, right? How many times did Jesus tell them, on the third day, I'm going to rise? But they're depressed. Road to Emmaus. And behold, two of them, Disciples were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place while they were talking and discussing. 
Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as we are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. (laughs) They're depressed. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of these who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And what does Jesus say to them? Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning from Moses, all through the prophets, he explained to them what they should have already understood about himself. He goes through all of scripture for them. But he, you see that there? They, they don't even get it. Even the, even the disciples, those who follow them, don't get it. And think of Peter. Peter's off fishing. He's just back to his vocation. He's off fishing, and he's despondent. And then he sees, he sees someone on the shoreline cooking some fish for breakfast over a fire. And he's like, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And he jumps from his boat, right? Swims to the shore. And there has a wonderful breakfast with his Savior. His risen Savior. Think of what the Apostle Paul writes at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. The first part of Romans. He says something about our Savior he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And these Pharisees thought that after his death, it would just be the end of him. It's the most stupendous mistake in all of history. I mean, we are in Spartanburg, South Carolina, worshiping Jesus Christ today. 
It is only that Jesus became more powerful after his death. In fact, he had to die so that there would be the power of of the Spirit that would come. Right? His influence only expanded. Again, they thought they could snuff Jesus out and his influence out, and after the resurrection, that most incredible display of power in the history of the world, his influence just increases. Think of the day of Pentecost. It's the fulfillment of a prophecy that speaks, you know, of of old men and young men and sons and daughters prophesying and being filled with the Spirit, this outpouring of the Spirit. And even that, the gift of the Spirit, is something that happens only in because Jesus died. He said that he had to go away so that he would send, and after that he would send the Spirit. Did the Pharisees know in killing Jesus that they would be <laughs> unleashing the Spirit of God? Who would blow about this world wherever he pleases and make disciples in every nation. No, they thought they would put an end to things, but, but they unleashed even the Spirit of God, and that Spirit would do His work. And He would continue through every age, even into the 21st century, to convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. He is still at work. And so Jesus' death would do the very opposite of what they desired. Again, just think about the power of God that was released by the death of Jesus. It was the power that would lead to the forgiveness of sins. John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Like that plague, there is today a poison of sin. It is only the power of the cross that will save somebody from that poison of sin. Nobody would ever be forgiven if Christ had not been crucified. The cross set Christ forth as the propitiation, the one thing in all the universe that could truly atone for sin, the unblemished Lamb of God. I mean, Jesus in response to these Pharisees is thinking, you think my death will be the end of me? No, it will be proof that the blood that is shed is is for the forgiveness of sins. That is one kind of power that came through Jesus' death. The Pharisees wanted him to die to stop his influence, but again, it only increased. Look at his apostles. Look at the transformation of his apostles. Of them, Jesus said that they would go on to do even greater works than he had done. More power. And how do we know that happened? Because with Jesus, there weren't a lot of conversions. There weren't mass conversions. But with the apostles, weeks, months, years after his death, 3,000 in one day, 5,000 in one day, right? Conversions to Christ. And they go out and they're preaching in power and and no longer is, is the apostle Peter saying quick, Uh, thoughtless things. He's preaching the word of God and people are crying out, what what must we do to be saved? 
And so through these men, the gospel went out not just to the region, but to the whole world, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. By killing Jesus, these Pharisees are releasing his power. Even all the nations come to him. Every one of the nations come to him. This happens by his death. And then there's this. This, There's one other thing implied in this verse in John 8. They thought that Jesus' death They thought that Jesus' death would be the end of their relationship with him. The Pharisees thought, get rid of Jesus, we don't have any more relationship with him, everything's done. Not only did they think that killing Jesus would end his power, but they thought killing him would would be the end of their trouble with him. And the end of their relating to him in any way, they would have no further relationship with him because he would be forgotten. He would be dead. He would be gone. But Jesus, in saying, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. He is saying this to these Jews, you aren't done with me. You aren't done with me when you crucify me. You aren't done with me ever, is what he's saying. To Caiaphas, at his trial, he said, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You think you're going to get rid of me, but you will see. You will see my power. I'm going to my Father in heaven and will be seated to his right hand, the hand of power, and so, did, did their killing Jesus end Jesus' relationship with them? No. 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 When did, when did he manifest his power after that? When did he relate to these Jews and Pharisees? Well, he certainly did in AD 70. He destroyed Jerusalem. They cried out for a Messiah as the Roman troops are destroying Jerusalem. Those Jews were crying out for their Messiah. Crying out, and this is them fulfilling what Jesus had just said to them, you will seek me and you will die in your sins. He'd already been sent and they had refused him. His power would be demonstrated in the destruction of everything they thought was holy, their beloved city, Jerusalem. But that is not all. That is certainly not the end of their relationship with Jesus, even still. Jesus said, hereafter shall you see me coming in the clouds of heaven. All people will see that. All people will see that. All people will see Jesus coming on the clouds. All people have an enduring relationship with Jesus Christ for all eternity. Every eye will see Jesus one day. Every person who has ever lived has a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is not an end point to any souls relating to Jesus Christ. You are only beginning with him when you reject him. It's only starting with him. 
Revelation 6, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it, rolled, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and freeman hid himself in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains, to the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? All of us will see the Son of God. One glimpse, one tiny glimpse, one, the absolute beginning fraction of a second when you glimpse Jesus at that time you will know that he is the Messiah. You will have no question in your mind. Because his glory will be astonishing. If you don't believe on him in this world, you will hate that appearing. You will hate it. You will call for those mountains to fall upon you. You will realize at that point that you've excluded yourself from God's everlasting Sabbath kingdom. Come to him before it is too late. This is the gospel. This is the Christian faith. Everyone will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Every person who has ever been made kings of the earth, slaves we've never heard of, everyone will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Will you do so after you have rejected him and it's forced on you as punishment? Or will you do so now so that when he appears, you glory in his appearing? You rejoice. You sing psalms and you shout and you get ready to eat the best meal of your life without getting fat. You will run toward him. You will run toward Jesus longing just to hold on to the fringe of his cloak while others run away trying to convince inanimate objects to fall on them and kill them. I mean, is this too much for us? Am I I just talking about mythology up here? Is this too much for 21st century people who have iPhones in their pockets? Is this too much? We got internets, you know? It's Jesus stuff. That was for people who didn't have the knowledge, the sophistication, you know, the tools that we have. I mean, we may be able to, to find immortality through science and bioengineering. Right. Right. Now, this... this God says his word is eternally true. This is the future. The death of Christ did not at all accomplish what the Pharisees thought it would accomplish. They were way off the mark. They believed in killing him that it would would end his influence, and they believed that in killing him it would end their relationship to him. 
That plan backfired. Jesus' death led to more potent power from God in this world, and there is no escaping Jesus Christ. Everyone will stand before him to give an account. Will you be found in him? Or will you die in your sins? This is the Christian faith. It was true in the first century. It is true in the 21st century. It will be true in the 33rd century when we're living on Mars. It's true. And so look to the cross now. Look to the cross now and bury your sins in him. Jesus Christ is Lord and he rose from the dead. He is the almighty God who came to save sinners. So trust in him. Trust in him before you stand before him. And he forcibly becomes your Lord. Trust in him now and you will find him a friend. When your eyes close and your body is put in the ground. Let's pray.